Hello and welcome to the Challenging University podcast with me, your host, Tony Kent. Now, how do you create an entirely unique career based on your life's experiences? And how do you end up advising government bodies, global leaders and policymakers when you haven't got a degree? Beth Britton is an award-winning content creator, consultant, trainer, campaigner and speaker who specialises in the field of elderly care with a specific focus on dementia. In this episode, Beth speaks movingly about bullying and being homeschooled, her father's dementia and past to diagnosis, combining work and study with helping to care for her dad, campaigning for better understanding and outcomes, and being filmed for the G8 Summit and becoming a renowned expert. Alongside her own incredible story, Beth provides a mini masterclass in how to be successful as a freelancer. Hello, Beth. Hello, Tony. And on how we kind of met, I shared the podcast on a Facebook group and you popped up saying, that's a great idea. And through that, I found you. So for the listeners today and the listeners to come, can you please share your name and what it is that you do today? Uh, So my name is Beth Britton and I'm a freelance uh, campaigner, consultant, writer and blogger and I work in health and social care. Brilliant. So that's what you do today. Let's go back in time a little bit to when you were at secondary school. What are your memories of being in education as a teenager? It kind of goes back actually to probably to primary school. So I didn't have a great primary school experience. I was bullied. I was mostly the child who was always last to be picked for everything. Um, I was once thrown in the deep end at swimming uh, and virtually felt like I was going to drown. So I hadn't had a great experience by the time secondary Mm -hmm. came around. Um, my parents chose a secondary that I, my, my best friend wasn't going to. Oh, um, so, but it was considered to be a really good school. Um, and it was a Church of England school and it was supposed to be a really good school. Um, and it was quite convenient to get me there and back and everything. So that was the one that got chosen. There were children from my class going. They just weren't my, my, not my best friend went to a yeah. different school. Um, so we kind of got off on a bad footing from day one um, and it didn't work out at all well. I was I was bullied there. I was bullied. I was bullied by the pupils. I was bullied by the teachers. Mm. I pretty much hated it from day one. Um, I remember a teacher making me do PE in my underwear because my mum hadn't packed the right PE kit. Wow. So it, was a, it, was a, it, was, it was kind of being plunged into this huge school that I didn't really want to be at with a, probably a group of children I either didn't get on that well with an awful lot I didn't know as well um never gelled with anybody never liked any of it it just turned into a disaster um I wasn't there more than a year before my parents started to home educate me oh interesting wow um and I'm interested to know why they chose educating you at home versus trying another school if you know why that was I don't I don't really I'm guessing it might have been a convenience into a certain degree because the school I perhaps could have gone to with my best friend wasn't going to be an easy journey I don't really know um oh. I'd become incredibly anxious and incredibly anti-school so maybe they just thought Do you know what we're going to pull back from all of that I don't know um but yeah, and, and also I think things were starting to change with my dad from the age of 12, which I'm sure we're going to get on to in a minute. And yeah. I think 
played a big factor. So I, I would have moved to secondary age 11, but by age 12, things were starting to change with my dad. That may also have factored into that equation. But my parents didn't teach me. They got tutors in for me. Okay. And, and um, I, had, I had secondary school teachers that were working in local schools. Yeah. Um, uh, one of whom I'm still really good friends with, actually. She taught me French. Uh, I'm going around to her house for, for lunch uh, this summer. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 that might also have been a factor as well, I think, perhaps the way things were changing with my dad. Okay. Um, and as you said, we'll, we'll come and start really soon. Um, but what's uh, something that's really interesting to me right now is obviously that homeschooling has always been around. Um, and like with a lot of things, people feel like it's only just been invented. But you'd been through that homeschooling experience you know, a little while ago. Um, so you had tutors come to you. Uh, what what kind oh, of I subjects or you went to them? What subjects were you studying? What did your parents choose for you or what did you choose? How did it work? It was the core stuff, basically. So it was English, math, science, geography, history, um, language, the French. Um, yeah. Yeah, that was pretty much it, I think. And did you sit GCSEs? What um, yes, qualifications? Yes, GCSEs back then. Yeah, um, I did those in a school. So, um, yeah. school allow children who are home educated to go in sit their exams. Yeah. Uh, so I went and did those in school. Yeah. Okay. And French, I still have nightmares. How I said it through all French, I have no idea. Oh, I loved. It. It's funny of all the subjects. I did enjoy French. I did enjoy that. The really with um, me, history, biology, and English, I really excelled in. And when you consider what I've gone on to do, the biology and English bits are particularly interesting. Makes sense. So, um, God, there's so much I could ask you. Did um, you have a clear preference? You talked about the subjects you, did, you excelled in. And do you feel like you were kind of allowed to, to um, I hate the term lean in, but I'm going to use it. Do you feel you were allowed to sort of invest more in the subjects that really interested you because you didn't have that pressure of being within the school system in its traditional sense? But it was, I was doing less than other children would have been doing. Um, so I guess I could focus more. Um, but I'd always been all the way through school. It had always been English, writing, reading. Incidentally, yeah. that's my daughter's strength as well. So I guess she gets that from me. Yeah. Um, I'd always <laughs> struggled more with maths, languages, chemistry, physics. They weren't really good for me. And history, of course, history emerged as being really good for me. But of course, that's very English and book and reading based. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, but I mean, I had school trips. I wasn't at school, but I had school trips. My history teacher arranged for us to go to the House of Commons for one of my school trips. Wow. So an interesting and varied kind of um, educational experience, but it was yeah. sitting outside what was happening at home as well. So Yeah. Okay. So when you came to, and, and, and these things will have happened in parallel, so perhaps you can sort of weave that in. Um, for this next question. So you've sat your GCSEs and what is the conversation at home and, and with your teachers about what comes next for you? What was it expected that you would do next? So I'd kind of shown an interest in media stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, so I did briefly go to college to do a media course. 
But I was really disillusioned with that and so were my parents because basically the, the course was ramshackle. It wasn't fun. Um, so I'd done work so my, in my sort of last part of my GCSE period, I'd done work experience and I'd done that in a local radio station and I'd loved it. Um, so media seemed to be a good fit. And again, interesting with what I've gone on to do. Um, but the course, I think it could have been great. It was just a real mess. And we were literally, I mean, I made some friends at college. We were literally just sitting around outside dossing, waiting for any education to happen at all day after day. And my parents were like, what is the point of this? Uh, yeah. So I was going to work um, where my mum was working, which at that time was a personal trust property. Um, and I went to work there in the ticket office. I just got so fed up of sitting around waiting um, for something to happen. And I just thought, you know, I'm just going to go and get some money instead. Um, okay. I did that. Uh, it was seasonal work. Um, but I went and did that to earn some money. Um, and that was kind of my entry into the world of work. And that was pretty much where education ended. Um, okay. There wasn't really, clearly my parents weren't going to be able to support me going into further higher education from that private tutoring perspective. So the only option was going to be sick form. Um, which I didn't really fancy going back into a sort of a sixth form environment. And as I say, the college course looked great, but the education, just, it just was a mess. Um, and so we were kind of at this crossroads of actually, what do I do? And it just seemed to be natural. Just, you know, there was an opportunity to go work, to go earn some money. Um, and I kind of wanted my own money. So I was, I was off, I was off doing that and, and education never really happened again, but I think a big part of, um, how that would all have come about as well was because of the changes in my dad. So from the age of 12, looking back, I didn't realise it when I was age 12, he was beginning to develop dementia. So uh, he talked to me about that. Yeah. So he was retired by the time I started secondary school and it seemed to be retirement was a real sea change moment for him. He really struggled to get into any other activities. So he'd been a farmer the cattle were sold and he was effectively retired. But whereas when he'd been working, he'd been doing his allotment, he'd been, he had a couple of friends up the allotment. So he would often you know, spend time with them and he was really busy with the animals and meeting up with other farmers and all that life. Mm. And it literally just fell away um, to the point where he wasn't doing the allotments, he wasn't doing the garden. Uh, and there was just really subtle changes in him, in his personality, in his moods. Um, not necessarily the classic memory loss that everyone thinks about. As it happened, my dad had vascular dementia. And although memory loss is, is present with vascular dementia, which is not the major symptom for some people, and it wasn't for my dad. It was more personality, mood changes, apathy, loss of interest in doing things. And that had a real knock-on effect in terms of the dynamic at home, um, his relationship with my mum, um, and just the fact that somebody kind of needed to be with him, kind of got to the stage where he couldn't really be on his own. Mm -hmm. um, and as things progressed, so he went 10 years without a diagnosis. So you're looking pretty much in my years from age 12 to age 22, he was diagnosed when I was 22. Um, it was very much gradual, gradual changes. And you get to the point where he would go out and you wouldn't know where he'd gone and he would get really muddled with things. Um, and he was barricading the door. And there was lots of stuff kind of going, a lot of paranoia, a lot of hallucinations. He believed the people on the TV were coming out into the room with him. You couldn't sit on certain chairs that he didn't want you to sit on. So obviously then having people round was really difficult. You couldn't really do that either. 
So there was lots of kind of challenge and difficulty at home. And I think it just kind of got to the point where in terms of what was happening with me, mm-hmm. I kind of needed to fit with what was happening with him. Um, and what did that mean in terms of your, so you're working at National Trust property in the ticket office. How did that, um, what was happening with your dad and like you say, family needing to be around him. How yeah, did that so my, my mum was working, my mum was working, my older brother was still at home. So between all of us, we kind of dovetailed, sort of. And certainly once I'd gone past sort of 16, 17, it was just kind of fitting round. My brother did quite a lot in that early sort of period as well. Um, and then by age 22, dad was collapsed on the floor at home, taken to hospital. My age 22, not his. Um, yeah. Collapsed on, on the floor at home, taken to hospital, and that's when he was officially diagnosed. But he had been seeing doctors prior to that. He'd been mm-hmm. seeing the GP, but on his own. And, of course, patient uh... reality, they never shared what was going on. And then in a, in a meeting, once he was diagnosed and he was an inpatient in the hospital, a consultant actually said to us, yes, I went to visit, went to visit your dad. I knew he had dementia and I couldn't do anything until a crisis occurred. So wow. they basically did absolutely nothing until we're plunged into the situation where they're saying, do you know what, he's not going home. Got to find a care home for him because he's a danger to himself and other people. He'd got out of the hospital and tried to get onto the railway line while right. he was a patient. So there was lots of, of, of real sort of difficulty um, with obviously dad and then finding a care home, we'd never had to do stuff like that before. So you've got no idea really what you're looking for. He only lasted six months in his first care home. He tried to strangle someone, went mm. back to hospital. He was six months in hospital, lost half his body weight while they argued about how his care was going to be paid for. Mm. At this point, there's not a lot of working going on. There's definitely not a lot of studying of anyone, <laughs> anything going on. No. Um, it becomes a full-time job, managing the system, the process. Mm. And even when your loved one is in a care home, I know some families place their loved one, they go and get on with their lives. That suits them. Didn't wasn't like that for us. We were there with him almost every single day. So I ended up going to do freelance work for a photographer because I could fit him, his work around my dad's care. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just kind of worked and I could be at the care home and I could I could get some work done and it just, yeah, it just worked for me. Um, How did you come to that kind of decision um, and how did you find that kind of work? Because I think for some people, they would feel maybe overwhelmed by what's happening at home and say, oh, I just can't figure out a way to, I guess it's, and it sounds like probably from the nature of the work you're doing, you were getting some fulfillment from that. If you're assisting a photographer, you weren't saying, oh, I'll just get a couple of hours in in, yeah. in any job. It sounds like you looked for something. He's an, in. he an interesting character. I want to try and modernise how he did things. Um, <laughs> yeah, that there was an element of resistance. Um, I look back quite fondly on a lot of the time we, we spent together, but uh, it was a very much a, a sort of arch opposites in terms of our approach. In between my National Trust work and my working for photographer, I actually edited a football website. That was entirely my own. That was my first sort of entrepreneurial thing entirely on my own. So I got a domain name that had belonged to a famous football commentator called Alan Green. It was called Voice of Football. And I turned it into a site that would um, nurture aspiring writers because that's kind of what I was as well, going back to that English sort of theme. Um, I'd always done writing. I I did all kinds of weird things. I, I wrote bits for 
the football fanzines. I I did the minutes for the local council for a while. God, that was terrible. Um, <laughs> I've been on the local council. It was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> so there was lots of there was lots of strange things that I just kind of fell into, but they all kind of had this common theme of either being um, something to do with technology and the emergence of the internet and what that was looking like. Um, mm had something to do with English and writing so I ended up with uh, I think about 23 people writing for me one of whom went on to become the Argentine correspondent for Soccernet um, ESPN Soccernet at the time so yeah it was and I'm still in touch with a couple of those guys as well I seem to I seem to forge relationships with people that seem to last the test of time Um, but I love that but again it, it fitted well around my dad the problem was it didn't make very much money that's how I ended up with the photographer's job I saw an advert in a window and ended up going for that because I had that website building tech sort of experience from the website work um, didn't know much about editing photos, so that was an interesting on-the-job um, sort of learning experience. Um, but, you know, it's all stood me in good stead because since I've ended up with what I do now as a legacy of my dad's life, I've needed the tech skills, I've needed the um, photo editing skills, I've certainly needed the writing skills. Mm-hmm. So it has all kind of, through some weird twist of fate maybe, you might say, all kind of come together but there wasn't a plan your question was kind of how did I get how did I plan this what went in attracted me into these mm. different there was absolutely no plan because the, the focus of life was always my dad you know we'd have these mm. crises where he'd go into hospital he had numerous days in hospital you'd be there eight nine hours a day to look after him because they didn't have the staff to look after and they didn't understand dementia if he was at the care home they were mostly always short staff so you were going to, to help him with food you were constantly labeling clothes fixing clothes finding clothes taking him out because they never had time to take him out so it was literally just what work would fit around dad mm. what could make a little bit of money just to help pay the bills i was mm. still living at home with my mom she was still working mm. um but i just fell into things there was no pattern it's not the greatest advice for someone who is in that position now but i guess i would possibly say um, if you are juggling, you know, difficulties at home with maybe parents or grandparents mm. or siblings and you kind of feel like you're going from job to job and you don't feel like you've got much focus, mm. I eventually found focus and I eventually found the thing that worked and it's worked now for almost 11 years. Um, and I get I get the sense that you were never passive in that process. So it seems to me that you always you were seeking, OK, well, that doesn't work. So I'm going to try this. Well, these are the things that I can't control, but this is the thing that I can control. So I'm quite in, in interested in what it is about you that 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 kind of makes you like that. Like you say, oh, I bought this. I bought this domain name from a famous <laughs> football writer. Um, I yeah. I don't know. I wonder if my early education experiences, which were far from conventional, there was a lot of hostility, and and I was a very shy child. And I was probably easy to pick on. And I wonder if actually as an adult, I kind of got to the point where actually, do you know, what? I need to take control here. I need to find a way that works for me and um, forge my own life. There's not a there's not an obvious career plan for me. I haven't gone and done A-levels, university. I've got this degree, which means I can go and do this type of job because I match that job description. There really wasn't a job description I fitted. I had a few GCSEs. I'd been home educated. I I was really interested in media work, but that's hellishly difficult to break into. Yeah. Um, 
I'd done then, you know, more writing, more photo editing. I, I had some skills, but nothing that looked like on a CV, like, yeah, go hire this girl. She's great. Mm. So I kind of, it's either sink or swim, isn't it? You either end up yeah. um, saying, okay, well, you know, I, I'm either going to go and do a job I hate. Yeah. <laughs> or I'm going to actually go and find the thing that fits for me. But what I've ended up doing now, again, it was never the intention. It was never a plan. People say to me, what was the plan? Because there wasn't a plan. So mm. and my dad, after his 10 years without a diagnosis, which takes us to me at age 22, then spent nine years in care homes. So he died yeah. at age 31. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I've alluded to, that took up a lot of our time because we were there supporting him a lot. Um, and there were lots of crises. Um, at one point, I was in the magistrate's court trying to keep the care home open, giving evidence about the fact that he'd had really good care. Yeah. Wow. Another interesting experience. Um, arguing with a lawyer in a court was was not what I expected to be doing. Um, yeah. And then the home changed hands and the care changed and lots of things happened. And then we get to 2011, so that's the year before my dad died. Care home changes hands. The biggest provider in the country owned the home at that point. They went out of business and things literally changed overnight. Um, mm. My dad developed pressure ulcers and then he eventually aspirated on his own vomit. Oh, Five God. times in, uh, in, it would have been March um, March 2012, mm. and by April 2012, he died. But we managed to find him another care home that provided some outstanding end-of-life care. So for those yeah. months, there wasn't work, there wasn't anything. There was just, my dad is, this is the last phase of his life. Mm. And being chasing CQC to inspect the home, making endless emails and phone calls to umpteen different people. And then when he was in the hospital, the doctor saying, don't think he's going to survive. This is like pouring acid into your lungs. He's really frail. Mm. Uh, he's on a DNR as well, so I do not resuscitate yeah. Um So that was completely all-consuming from pretty much September 2011 until April 2012. I don't remember anything other than the crisis of my dad's last months of life. Mm. Um and then he died, and, and and earlier in 2012, there'd been the Prime Minister's Challenge on Dementia. So for the first okay. time, my government were really talking about dementia. Mm. And after Dad died, I just thought, God, what's this these years been? What have they been for? What mm. have I learned? What, has he, what have we all learned from his experience? How could we do things better for other people in his position? And what yeah. really was as well, music was amazing for my dad, and we discovered that purely by chance. We'd put a TV in his care home room, and he literally decided, you know what, don't want that, and smashed it on the floor. Okay. Second, second time, he smashed the second telly after I'd replaced the first one. I kind of got the message, okay, don't want this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to share some of that, and dementia had kind of come into the fore. So going back to my whole tech website thing and mm. blogging, it's quite a big thing by 2012. Yeah. Do you know what? I'll begin a blog. I need to find work. Mm. So one of the last things I did in terms of work was doing training as a singer and singing in care homes because after I discovered my dad loved music, yeah, I that for other people. So I bought his 1940s dress and I went around doing some of that before the crisis of the September 2011 and all what followed since that. Mm. Um, so I wasn't going to go back to the singing. I wasn't going to go back to the photographer. I'd long since said um, goodbye to him. Mm-hmm. Um, but clearly with my dad gone, I had to, I would need full-time work, yeah. but I just began this blog as a, an aside. I just thought, you know, I'm going to share some of what worked for us, but I'm also going to share the messages of what didn't work and what happens when 
providers change in care homes and the perils of of, of removing staff and running the place on agency and making it look like a hotel when in reality the care was horrendous. Mm. And that's something that you don't, and I guess this is it, because um, it's, I don't, you have the uh, overarching messages about health conditions, for example, or disabilities, and you're shown, like you say, the, the loving, caring side of things, but what people have to be equipped with is what it's actually like and it sounds like your blog offered people some points of truth and understanding and actually information they could equip themselves with to go through the process of caring for a loved one with dementia what did you call the blog how did you set it up so i called it d for dementia so a letter d and then a number four and then dementia yeah um chose Blogspot, wouldn't recommend it. It was, it was the Google blogging platform. Uh, it was kind of a toss up between that and WordPress. I thought WordPress looked too complicated. So I went yeah. for the, the lesser of the two complicated options, massively regretted it, have now moved to WordPress. Okay. Um, <laughs> launched it in Dementia Action Week in May 2012, along yeah. really sort of working on my Twitter for the first time. I thought, I read the advice if you've got a blog, you've got to promote it. So yeah. I'd kind of got into Twitter, I had a Facebook page. Uh, did a bit on LinkedIn and the real sort of moment the blog in that first week I, I blogged every day for that Dementia Action Week um, and the the first real sort of amazing whoa on the blog and the comments and, and everything was when Alistair Campbell followed me okay wow so, um, obviously he wasn't working um, working in government then he was very much a, a very high profile individual on the side because it was it was the Cameron Clegg coalition government at that point yeah um, but he shared my blog and wow. went a bit big really yeah lots of people started looking at it lots of people started commenting on it I was like oh okay and that became I kind of got suckered into doing the blogging and doing the, the social media and I wasn't earning any money and it was like oh okay what am I gonna do what am I gonna do yeah. And I got in touch with a dementia um, research charity down in Bristol. Um, and they said, would you come and speak at our conferences that we were doing in that September 2012? So I went and I thought well, a bit of public speaking experience might be no bad thing. What am I going to do for work? I need to be thinking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got shortlisted for in 2012 for a Roses Media Award. So the autumn of 2012, well, I'm still not making any money, but... yeah. <laughs> speaking and I'm doing this writing and people seem to really love it and then I'm shortlisted for this Roses Media Award and I go to this lovely ceremony in London and I lose out to Louis Theroux because he'd made some dementia programs for the BBC okay and that but there was so much praise for my work my blog and my work and people coming up to me okay maybe there's something in this um and I still didn't have any job I still didn't have any money I was still just doing blogging let me tell you folks but doing a blog doesn't necessarily make you money um so I was still doing all of this and my mum was very kindly sort of supporting me. Um, and then in 2013, profile just continued to grow, grow, grow. Um, and pretty much a year from when I'd spoken at that um, BRACE conference in September 20, um, 2012, by September 2013, I'm working with the government planning the G8 Dementia Summits. Um, How I, did that happen? Because you casually dropped that in. Up. Just profile, Tony, honestly, just things just snowballed day in, day out on social media. I was asked, being asked to speak at conferences because my initial conference speaking at those Brace conferences down near Bristol in um, 
in September 2012 had been really well received. People said it was so authentic to hear from someone who'd lived this experience. Mm. And it was giving advice. I had a care provider come up to me after that saying, I need you to come and train my staff. So that wow. put that little seed in my head. Could I do that? Could I train people? Yeah. I've never been trained to educate. I've never been trained as a teacher. But mm. could I? Maybe. Um, how did you, um, quick question, how did you structure those talks because I think for a lot of people that they find the prospect of speaking a lot of people find the prospect of speaking in public terrifying um, and you've got such an enormous breadth of experience there not just as a family member as a daughter but like you say you've been in a magistrate's court you're dealing with the CQC you're delivering nursing care in the absence of star, you know staffing levels how did you condense that into a talk <laughs> really tricky so I can tell you first and foremost it was a crash course in learning PowerPoint because I'd never done that before okay just <laughs> don't work on PowerPoint so yeah. I had to learn to do slides again just taught myself off the internet how do you do stuff fiddle around takes a lot of hours but you get there in the end mm-hmm. um again I'd been used to trying to learn to construct websites I never did any education on that I just literally learned as I went along reading books yeah. looking at videos etc i there's nothing really formal about what i do i kind of self-educate i want to do something so i figure how i'm going to do it yeah and again it was just i i think in those early days it was very much telling the story of my dad's life that was the power that was the power that was the story that was and it was so raw and i was so passionate and Mm. i i would sometimes almost be on the brink of crying Mm. um and I wanted, I just passionately felt, I want people to know, what was this like for us? What, did, what was really good for my dad that you could try and replicate with quite a few people are living with dementia? Not everyone, mm. that's very individual. Um, what could you replicate? What could you take away? Not just as a family member, but as a professional. It was a real mm. moment for me when that, that, that care home um, CEO came up to me and said, you need to come train my staff. And that was my mm. first ever speech. And I realised... There's a power of a personal story. And you can have a really hard personal story. You might have a personal story that a sibling committed suicide when you were a child or your parent died of motor neurone disease really young or cancer or, you know, or you had to look after a sibling who was profoundly disabled. Or it doesn't, I don't think it matters what your personal story is, but if you have a personal story that can teach people something, mm. it's so powerful. It is the most powerful form of education in my experience mm. now everything I've done since. Um, So I constructed those talks very much around my dad's life initially. They're quite different Mm. now because I have so much work experience that I bring to the table, experience at homes. I still talk about my dad. He's central to everything. But my experiences with different care providers and everything um, has really come to the fore. And when I did my two-minute G8 film, and maybe you'll you'll link to that with with this. Yeah. With, with what we're doing today, you can you can provide the link for that. Uh, they literally the government stuck they stuck us in a um in a in a professional pop video studio. I had lovely makeup done. I don't look anything like I look today. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and literally that was the one and only time they actually I ever cried on camera, and they actually stopped the camera. And you can see in the bit they edit up in the end that I'm just starting to wobble when I say he was my dad, and you only get one dad. But obviously with that film, with all the events in London, it was the first time the G8 countries had ever met to discuss dementia. Um, Everything for me just snowballed. Um, So that that the G8 Dementia Summit happened in the December 
I went to the summit. Um, but prior to that, uh, obviously, you know, massive interest in me, in my work. I'd already got my my, my now longest serving client. Um, I met the CEO of McIntyre in the September of 2013 um, and began to work with them in the October 2013 and still do to this day. I'm their dementia consultant. They provide support. Mm-hmm people with known disabilities who are as they age more at risk of developing dementia so i've done some fabulous amazing work with them i've learned so much about how they care for people and how the known disability sector approaches um support it's very different from the aged care sector so i've had that wonderful opportunity to be that crossover person who works in that real person-centered wonderful learning disability environment and then can take that into my older people services to support those staff to work towards enabling people to be more independent and to learn more about what people want and to really embrace opportunity as they do in their disability. So I've just been so lucky. Um, mm-hmm. Everything is kind of dovetailed in the most beautiful and amazing way with my dad at the centre and everything he went through, which I still talk about, but mm-hmm. everything else has come along since. And I'm so lucky I get to help people. It's I, I always needed to earn money. We all need to earn money. And mm. so much about going to university and education is what job are you going to get at the end of it? What career is this going to be? How much are you going to earn? Yeah. Um, I've never been driven by money. Of course, you have to have money to pay your bills. I've never been in debt. So I never believed in being in debt. And I've had amazing support from my mum to enable me to stay in that position over the years because clearly I've had a lot of career gaps. Um, mm. But... Yeah, I just, I've been so lucky. I'm lucky I get to help people. And if I can walk away from service knowing I've helped someone, um, I, a classic example recently was a gentleman. I went, to, he'd moved into one of my camps. He'd been there five nights, he hadn't slept. Mm-hmm. And I was there on that fifth fifth day mm-hmm. um, uh, when he had all these nights of not sleeping and brainstormed with the staff what to try and do. And I got a message the next day, he slept last night. Mm-hmm. that's just that's priceless there's there's yeah. no there's no careers advisor that can give you the answer to do a career like that nobody would say there isn't a job I don't think that is what I do um there are plenty of people who do similar things and many of them have personal experiences as well as people who have have degrees but I, I, yeah it's 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 quite a unique path but as I say anyone who's had any personal experiences in their life that are powerful and that can teach other people things. I think you onto something, whether you do it as a hobby or whether you do it as a job. Mm. Share and, what you learn. And um, you have been working in um, within groups and organisations, like you say. You worked on the G eight. You working with the CEO of McIntyre. You have been, I think, discussing policy and things like that. Are there times when people say to you? So where did you study dementia? Do you have a degree in clinical psychology? Or do you know what I mean? Do people expect that yeah. you have have that level of education? Yeah. So, yeah, God, you can have a real bad imposter syndrome in my <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've sat in, so um, particularly before I had my children, I used to go to London a lot. So I worked with the Department for Health and Social Care on um, post-diagnostic policy. That obviously dovetailed after the G8 work I did with them. I sat on a NICE guideline committee. I worked for Public Health England as they were then. I worked for CQC. I did a press conference with then Secretary of State, uh, Secretary of State for Health, Jeremy Hunt, um, when he was introducing um, the uh, the special measures regime for care homes. Yeah. Um, and I was always the person 
with lived experience, but I was often also the person when I stood up in front of a room and spoke about our experiences that probably got the biggest round of applause. Mm. I think people, it just resonates. So actually, I think you quickly realise you have something quite valuable to offer beyond mm. the traditional education. And I was sitting in full of rooms, full of people with letters after their name and, and everything. But I quickly realised, I think, that what I had was quite special. And I always say to all my students in all the training I do now, I train NHS and social care staff. Um, I always say, um, I'm not going to give you a textbook. This isn't going to be academic. Any client who commissions training from me, you won't get academia. You might get some references to books and, and good publications that you should go and look at. What you will get is you will get the personal experience and I will work with other experts. So I work with people who live with dementia now into my training sessions to offer their experiences, their personal experiences of what living like living with dementia is like for them now. Mm -hmm. um, and in the evaluations afterwards, um, yeah, I, I get nice comments, mm -hmm. but the best comments are always re reserved for the experts. And that's where I say that it's not always about necessarily what a textbook can teach you, what a lecturer can teach you, what a teacher can teach you. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have something very valuable that you have lived through that can teach other people so much. And I think that would be my message to your listeners. Um, that yeah, if you're ever in that position for whatever reason, whatever life throws at you and however tough it might get, you may find you've learned something from that that is very valuable to other people. It is, um, it's, it's incredible to kind of hear your story and how you have like for, for many people, you know, going through experiences that you and your family went through and, and not let you know not what your dad went through, but living through that as a family, isn't it exhausting, traumatizing process at times, you know? People um, just want to park it. They want to forget it. Once you've had the funeral, it's like, I never want to revisit this ever again. Yeah. And how, how do you um, take, like you, you've talked about that, you know, you are a, an expert from a lived experience perspective. And, and I love that policymakers and organizations take that seriously because as you say, you can have all the theory that you like, but until you understand in practice what that means, you know, you need people like you to speak about it. But how do you take, how have you managed to take that experience you had and, and turn some of those difficulties into something that you can talk about every day because you are reliving parts of that every day. How do you do that? Yeah, and mostly I do it and it's not, I don't find it difficult. I am I am co-delivering at the moment a loss and bereavement course and obviously you have to dig a bit deep for that. Yeah. Um, I very much miss my dad. But I co-deliver that with a colleague who was once a support worker but she is now a manager. So she doesn't have an academic background. Her and I are very much aligned in our passion for sharing practical experiences and we do that alongside a lady with a learning disability and it is the most powerful session it was a sellout uh the first time we ran it in march we've got further sessions later this year and next year um i don't know i think the thing that that probably stands me in good stead is there's always something to learn so i've recently been in hospital myself as we were talking about before we yeah. started recording and even in that experience and even how ill i was feeling I learned so much from watching my consultant with his team of juniors come in every morning. Uh, <laughs> I'm taking notes. 
And there was one phrase he used that I just absolutely loved. Um, he said to his students, said, now you have a look and don't say anything that the last person said. So I've already warned some of my colleagues I've been in touch. I've learned a lot. It's really interesting. Um, and, uh, and yeah, you can expect that line from me in a training session in the future. I have told you I'm going to borrow it um, with credit to him. Um, yeah. I don't know how you keep it current. I don't know how you distill the learning. I, I seem to have found a natural flair for it. I've never yeah. had the teacher training at all. Um, but I just seem to have found a way of conveying messages both personal mingling with the practical mingling with the professional mingling with the key things you need to know about things like dementia because we do cover some science and some other things like that um but i think the proof of the pudding is always do you actually make a difference and the example i gave the gentleman and he's sleeping yeah that's my life i i predominantly when I'm not delivering formal training sessions, I'm troubleshooting and supporting services where they have an individual they're supporting, where they have a difficulty, where they have a problem, and they need someone to talk to. And I so admire the fact that those organisations use someone like me and give those staff that opportunity to brainstorm with someone outside of an organisation. How can we do this differently? Fresh eyes make such a difference in health and care. Fresh eyes can mean the difference between life and death. Because sometimes yeah. friends spot something that regular eyes don't spot. And to just be able to have that dialogue. And I learn from my staff and the people I work with. And they learn from me. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful relationship. And as I say, it's it's not a career path. It's not something a career advisor would say, yes, you can go and be a freelance consultant and you can go and do this. <laughs> I, I fell into it. Um it was the publicity that surrounded it that kept me in it that eventually brought people to me who would pay me for what I knew and what I yep. could do. And it's just been a development of skills and I don't stop learning. I believe learning is a constant process throughout life. So I constantly learn from others. And as I say, I just learned from my own experiences in hospital and some yep. of the wonderful things I had and experienced and saw and did. Um, and yeah, it just it's lifelong learning and development and I would never ever want to do anything else now I just yeah I love what I do I love that I can make a difference to me it's it's an incredible story so far just so far <laughs> um and you've talked about kind of things that hold you in good stead and I, I heard some real advice in there for people you say if you're experiencing a challenge in your in your life actually that could be something that in future you will have learned from and you can use what you've learned to help others um what kind of what advice might you have for people who are looking to go down the freelance route for example so you have built your own career um what advice would you have for, for other people that that might like to find that kind of route so I started from literally zero skills in this and worked my way up. So I bear in mind, I don't know GCSEs in technology or any qualifications in technology. So I learned to build websites. I learned how social media worked. A lot of young people these days will already know a lot of that anyway. Yeah. Um, I kept my costs down. I never employed designers. I never employed accountants. I literally learned to do this stuff myself. Maths is not my strong point, but I learned to do accounts. Um, you know, I learned to build websites, blogs, social media. Um, your profile is important. Your connections are really important. 
So I've made a lot of connections. In that first year after my dad died, and I was invited to different conferences and I did media mm-hmm. interviews and, and different things, the publicity generates obviously more knowledge about you and more demand for you. And where there is demand, so you can start to look at actually what can you charge for? What can that look like? I was incredibly lucky to be mentored by a very leading figure in um, in social care quite early on. I did a conference with him in early 2013 mm-hmm. and um, I was a panellist. He was the chair. We got chatting um, and he was an amazing source of support for me. So whatever industry you might be looking to go into, find out who the key people are. If you can rub shoulders with them, if you can get a bit of their time, if you can get a bit of their advice, he helped me with my first fee structure, for example. Yeah. That makes such a very big difference. Um, yeah. Try not to undersell yourself. Don't ever oversell yourself. Um, always do a favour for someone. I've done a lot of favours over the years. They haven't made me money, but it's just part of that holistic making connections, building bridges. Not everything for me is about earning money. Um, And just know your worth in a sense. Know Mm -hmm. that actually you might not be academically qualified, but if you have a skill set and you're willing to learn from other people around you and you work in a sector where people are very generous with their time and expertise, and I'm very lucky I do, and a lot of caring people in the caring professions, um, then you just grow and develop and always be open to new opportunities and, and, and things. I've been asked to go and speak at the House of Commons this month. Again, I've done it before and I'm going to go and do that again. Um, and that's not the sort of paid thing you do, but it just makes a difference to support an organisation with the launch of, of what they're trying to get across. You deliver some key messages about what my experiences have been. In this case, it's going to be around supporting people with eating and care homes. Um, and you just it's just that opportunity to do something a bit different alongside doing fabulous things like talking to you uh, <laughs> and, and all my client work and, and going to care homes, working with my dom care agencies and doing my zoom training and all the stuff it just kind of it just weaves together and life is very different i can be writing a blog one day i could be a guest on a podcast another day i could be going to a care home another day i quite like that variety i've never really tried to pigeonhole myself and then in yeah. terms of specifically of blogging, I've seen a lot of people who blog and they blog, they have a blog and then they blog about anything and everything. I've always kind of stuck very much to dementia, health and care on D for dementia. That's where it all began. Every yeah. lead I've had has either come to me from my blog or from social media. Yeah. Bear in mind that you don't directly earn any money from me, any of those things. But the quality of what you offer there is really important. So that would probably yeah. be another key point and just keep an open mind you know if opportunities come along grab them enjoy them I was more able to do that before I had two children it's a bit more tricky now well I'm just counting here one two three four five six there's I've got ten I've got ten this is like a mini masterclass (laughs) in well in in life as a as a freelancer and uh, and I think life in general um I've loved talking to you, Beth. I will put a link to your G8 film in the uh, show notes for this episode, as well as links to D for Dementia. Um, before we wrap up, is is there anywhere else that you would recommend people go to find you? So you've got my website, bethbritton.com. That's where you'll find my whole portfolio. Brilliant. Um, 
you'll find films and interviews I've done. You'll find blogs. Um, yeah. It's not always as up to date as it should be. It's kind of one of those things that doesn't <laughs> as often as it should. And I've had I've had a really bad sort of month of illness, so everything is very behind at the moment. But um, yeah, that's kind of where you can find me. My Google, my my daughter um jokes with me, and she's often googling mummy. Uh, she gets all her friends googling mummy. Uh, yeah. Google Beth Britain, you will find quite an alarming amount about me. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's kind of where you find me. And then in terms of of, of where I would recommend if you um, you want to see the power of lived experience, I would look at organisations like Innovations in Dementia um, and Dementia Diaries and places where people talk about the power of lived experience. And one of the most amazing people I've met in my um uh, my, my almost 11 years of doing this now as a gentleman who interviewed me uh, for a film it is on my website it was made for Havis Links and his name is Matt Eagles and he was diagnosed with Parkinson's when he was seven and wow. that could have been the biggest knockback in the entire world for a seven-year-old and he has gone on to just be the most amazing ambassador um, educator Parkinson's so if you want to see how someone takes a really tough experience and that's tougher than what I went through in my opinion Mm -hmm. and they turn it around he's a great example of that um fantastic it's it's just it's just that message of if life deals you a tough hand there can often be something positive that can come out of it and even if it's just sharing what happened to you to help someone else that makes a difference that's lovely thank you so much for your time Beth. thank you Tony